This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring and improving open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or Short Chaos Project, wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. In this episode, I'd like to welcome Ruth Seeley from Red Hat Software to this episode. Hi, Ruth. Hey. Also with us today is Brian Prophet from Red Hat Software. Good day, Mr. Goggins. Good day, Mr. Prophet. And Elizabeth Barron, Community Manager for the Chaos Project. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, how's it going? It's going really well because we're podcasting here today. Ruth, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I work at Red Hat. I have been there for almost 14 years. I work in the open source program office where I'm the director of our community outreach team. And what that means is we support our upstream open source projects in pretty much any way that we can be useful to them. I usually refer to it as kind of everything but the code. So we do health audit for them every year and look at where we can help and where we can't help. We point them to resources that can help them. I also manage the relationships with our memberships and various industry organizations, standards, bodies, things like that. And just generally try to to help out with a lot of projects that make the open source world a better place, which I think is what we were going to talk about today. It is. In fact, we met for the first time through a humanitarian open source software project when I was at Drexel in 2011. Do you still work on that kind of project or has your whole role moved on from there? Well, when we met, I was working on the early days of opensource.com, which definitely still exists, but in a much bigger and better fashion than its baby state back then. So I don't really work much on opensource.com anymore. That lives in a different part of Red Hat that I left when I came to what's now the open source program office about nine years ago. But I do like to see it and and know that it's still there and doing great things. And opensource.com certainly does do a lot to improve awareness of open source software and how it helps people and helps different communities and is a useful model for engaging lots of people. With us also today from Red Hat is Brian Prophet, who I think has periodically been kind of with you on these different journeys that you've taken through Red Hat software. Yeah, my job basically is to make sure Ruth does her job. So it's (laughs) so I help her. (laughs) No, I am also with the Open Source Program Office. I've been with Red Hat coming up on eight years soon. I work on Ruth's team as the manager of the Community Insights team. And our team is responsible for metrics and analysis of Mm -hmm. community in terms of getting the community help. I think listeners will be familiar with that. And then also we work on building educational curricula and content that will further scale out the messaging around open source and open source best practices. So yeah, and delighted to be here today. Yeah, glad you're here. You actually do all those audits and stuff I was taking credit for. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, taking credit means you have to explain it later. So I'm sure Brian appreciates that part. Ruth, tell us a little bit about what Colab is, first question, and then what it was involved with and what it was like to take it virtual. 
Collab so, is a project that we started at Red Hat back in 2017 and kind of like opensource.com has grown significantly beyond where it started, which is fantastic. So it comes out of a team in Red Hat called Open Source Stories. And we started it as an outreach effort to middle school girls specifically to increase their interest in STEM. So we knew that there were a lot of coding camps out there. And we didn't want to create just another coding camp. There are plenty of places that you can go to learn to code. And so what we really wanted to teach them was the fundamental concepts of open source to teach them that collaboration and transparency and all of those things that make open source software projects so successful can actually improve a lot of other things in their own communities and the things that they're interested in, the things that they're involved in. We bring mentors from both Red Hat as well as partner companies in the local area to the workshops when we're able to do them live and uh, help them see that a career in STEM doesn't have to mean writing code. I explained to them my background is actually in journalism and I might write a line of code or two for something when I absolutely have to, but nobody wants me to do it on a, a daily basis for sure. But here I am teaching them how to build strange things out of electronics parts. So they are generally based in hardware projects of various sorts. So the first thing that we had them do was build little cameras with a Raspberry Pi. And so the Raspberry Pi, of course, has its own camera module and there are plenty of enclosures. And so we got these parts together and we would show them the code that it needed, but also give it to them. It was ready to go for them. But we would walk them through it and show them places where it was easy for them to understand it. The code doesn't have to be a mystery, right? Right. And we sent them out to take pictures with the cameras that they had built based on a poem. We used a few different poems and then they would use those pictures to work together to create an art project out of the photos they had taken inspired by these poems. And they came up with some really great projects in several cities. And then we've expanded it to several new projects. First, when we were doing it in person, we did a project that was called Breaking the Code. Breaking the Code. That sounds like a really good idea. It does sound like a really good idea, especially when you want to take this giant book full of wires through an airport, because that was the result. So Breaking the Code was a short novel written by a young adult author in Colorado. And it's the story of two middle school girls who get trapped in the basement under their school during spring break. Oh, my goodness. And they're looking for a secret vault full of gold that may or may not exist. Wow. Yeah. And so they have to solve a bunch of puzzles to get out. And what the collab students do is illustrate the book. So the first half of the workshop, we illustrate pages using copper tape and LEDs so the pages can light up. Oh. Like maybe there's a street light that lights up or a cell phone lights up. And then in the second half of the day, I explained to them, you can use everything that you just learned, but we're going to do it with lily pad Arduinos and conductive fabric and some other things. Like maybe the page is going to buzz or play music, but it's all the same stuff you did just with tape and stickers. It's just and a so different platform. Colab makes things tangible. So it's not invisible code in a sense. That seems like a really essential part of the experience. It is. And the fact that they rarely, if ever, can do it by themselves, it, even from the perspective, of course, we're building a book together. So each of you is doing two pages. So you couldn't do the book by yourself. You needed everyone else. But also, I have to tell them repeatedly, you learn in school not to look at the paper next to you, not to get help from your neighbor. But here for this one day or two days or however long we're together, you absolutely should work together. So if the person next to you is having a little trouble, you help her out, figure out how to do it together. That is brilliant. I know 
This is the first thing I have to teach my software engineering students who are juniors is that unlike all of the other computer science classes you take in software engineering, you're supposed to look for help on the internet and from your classmates. And this, this sounds like exactly the same kind of experience that one might create to compel participants to be on a team as opposed to heads down alone in the code, like the mythical person who sits out there on an internet connection all alone. How many girls are in a class usually? It has varied. So when we first started doing collabs, I think you can see some pictures if you go to redhat.com slash collab, C-O-L-A-B. We were doing them in converted trailers, like tractor trailers. And I think when we did those, we would have nine to 12. It's been a few years. We're doing them now in different spaces, but ideally kind of in the 15 to 20 neighborhood. And it depends on the project. So the if we're doing Breaking the Code, that book, each person does two pages. And I think you end up illustrating a total of 22 so or 24. So 11 or 12 is ideal. And of course, on any given day, you might have a sick kid or whatever happens. We always make it work right, out. Right. Somebody gets to do a bonus page. When we get you- it virtual, it's a little bit different. So we have adjusted the Breaking the Code curriculum. We can't really build a book together with kids scattered across Zoom screens, wherever they may be. Right. So we're doing a simplified version that is really the copper tape and LED project, but they build a card. But to make it so that they still have the piece of collaboration, they get two kits. So they come to class, they learn how to build it, and then they have a second one so they can teach someone else what they've learned. Like In infectious disease. Format, we have done quite a few. So for Martin Luther King Jr. Day this year, we did a day of service where we had several instructors and taught several hundred kids that day, obviously with multiple instructors. It's a little challenging in the virtual format because there's only so much I can do. I I can't measure the electricity on your card through the screen. So I can give you all of the hints that I know to try to make your card work. And so far we get them all working. So it's an added challenge, but it's working out. Have you been able to sustain the level of participation in Colab as it's gone virtual? Or have you been sort of forced by practical constraints into fewer collab events? Oh, no. In fact, one of this year's goals for the team and full disclosure, I am the lead instructor for many of the collabs and have been since we started. I don't administrate the program, so I'm passing on information on behalf of other folks. But one of their goals this year is to increase collab. And actually, we've expanded the operating models, how they're delivered. So now there are options. There are these events where either you have an instructor live in a room or we're doing it over Zoom right now still. We also have self-serve kits. So on that website I mentioned, you can go Spark Fun Kits are projects. And so you can get them, you can run workshops yourselves. And there's more information there about how you could do that with a class. It sounds like the virtualization of Colab has been rather successful, almost uh, an accidental byproduct. For sure. And I think that's true for a lot of things. So Brian and I also work on a lot of open source events. And for those of us who do a ton of open source conferences, it's felt a little like a little bit of a drag, right? You don't have quite the same experience because a lot of what we're interested in is the the person-to-person interaction that's hard to duplicate. But the flip side is for people who don't have that opportunity to go to things to go to $1,500 conferences that are now slashing their ticket prices to zero and you don't have to travel anywhere and you don't have to take time off and you don't have to get on a plane or get a hotel room. It has increased attendance at these events by 
fantastically huge numbers for all of them and opened up that opportunity for a lot of people. So yeah, I think not just for CoLab, but for a lot of folks, there actually has been opportunity and doing things virtually. And how long have you been involved in CoLab leading it like this? Since the beginning, since 2017. 2017. Okay, that's right. You said that earlier. So we're four years in and how much has it grown? Like percentage wise, it sounds like it's gotten much larger. We have grown quite a bit. And, and the goal has varied each year over how many workshops we were intending to deliver in a year and where. So we have done this across the U.S. We've done it in Boston and New York, D.C., Raleigh, Denver, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, uh, quite a few places around the U.S. We've also done it in London, and we've had other folks running them in various places around the world. Of course, that changed dramatically when we had to shift to virtual and we had to figure out the tools, first of all, because there are a lot of considerations when you have children in a virtual environment. We had to figure out how the curricula were going to work when we were delivering them virtually, all that. So that changed a lot in the last year, but we definitely have increased the student reach quite a bit to several hundred and launched several new kits. So I mentioned that you can go purchase kits yourself and run these. You can also just do them if you have a kid or if you just like doing projects because they are kind of fun. Yeah. Pick them up off of Spark Fun. And we also have some videos that go with them. So there's a farm kit where you can uh, grow microgreens. And what the kit does is light up when they need watering, which is really bad at keeping plants alive. So this is a useful feature. D and yeah, me too. I've got one dying here in the corner. Yeah, we do need the farm kit so that you know when it needs water. Yeah. But that one has a video called Farming for the Future that goes with it. We have a super cool robot kit, so you can build your own open source robot. And the video for that is called How to Start a Robot Revolution. We have a light sensing kit that spins a little motor faster and slower, depending on how much light it's sensing. And then one called the Conversation Machine that's fairly new, a little harder to describe. The idea is to provide visual communication. So maybe to offer input in a meeting without having to speak up. You can press the green button for I agree, things like that. I'm imagining R2-D2 from Star Wars broadcasting a little video in the meeting. Are we that sophisticated yet? Have we gotten to R2 stage? Actually, one of my favorite Raspberry Pi projects was a guy who built an R2 unit to propose to his girlfriend, I believe was the actual purpose, oh but it was bilingual, God. pretty much fully functional. That is so, so sweet. Raspberry Pi and get on it. What are you doing today? Wow, that is truly amazing. Clearly, I need to take notes. So it's all work so. out. Well, I know there are all these hardware kit and the variety is amazing. But I also know that when it first went virtual, there was a lot of exploration of new methodologies and whatnot. And the one that I was really excited about was the gaming and the text-based gaming because I am the olds. And I remember when those first came out and that was the only thing. Can you kind of explore that a little bit? Because that was a really cool addition to the curriculum for virtual. It's not kitted. So it's not in that list of things that you can just go easily purchase. We are working on figuring out how to easily share it. And as I explained what it is, you'll see one of the challenges in sharing is that then you have the answers. So I also help co-lead the gaming community of practice at Red Hat, and there seemed to be some potentially enjoyable overlap here where maybe we could develop a video game-based curriculum for CoLab. And, and there is an open source game engine called Godot, and we're friends with those folks, and so we explored that a bit. And we do have some folks at Red Hat who were game developers in a previous life, and actually you can check out arcade.redhat.com and play some of their cool stuff. 
So we were talking about what we could do, but also game development is not a low bar. This is kind of a commitment for people for whom it wasn't their full-time job. And then one day I was in our new hire orientation class. I often speak to those folks about how open source software happens. And someone in that class that happened to be discussing video gaming when I arrived, it was interesting, messaged me and we started chatting. And he had built this system called Game on Text that was an open source text adventure system. And I, I realized immediately that is the perfect solution to our problem, text adventure for CoLab. Of course, then first problem is explaining to 11-year-olds what a text adventure is. Yeah. But it's really interesting to watch. So my kids at the time were 11 and 14. This was last year. And so when I first built it out, I used them as my test subjects. And Ooh. I didn't tell them anything about what they were supposed to do at all. I just put them in front of it and said, go. And somehow they instinctively understood typing those very basic verb noun commands instead of complete sentences or anything weird. I attribute this to Minecraft has a, a similar input system for certain, yeah. but it was really interesting to me how quickly they caught on. So what I did was I converted the breaking the code story about the middle school girls trapped in the basement into a text adventure. Ooh. And tried to add a, a few little features so that you couldn't really get out of the basement alone, like probably if you tried hard enough, but that it worked better if you had two or three other people helping you get out of the basement. That was really fun. That sounds awesome. Can we download this somewhere? Is that at collab.com or redhat.com slash collab? Collab has a space in GitHub where we upload everything. So you can actually go, if you want to color the breaking the code pages yourself, you can go download the book and, and make those pages. And so the text game stuff I put in a personal repo so that if kids went learning about collab before they showed up, they didn't find the repo immediately with all of the information <laughs> that would tell them all of the answers. So technically, yes, but you need to go to my GitHub page and not the collab GitHub page. Ah, because giving the answers away to middle schoolers is often it short circuits the experience, I would imagine. Right. What could go wrong if they know everything about how to get out before they show up? Yeah. But it was super fun to write. I put in a ton of useless things, like you can have a conversation with a spider and all those fun things that you really love from the old text adventures. It's a really actually a fascinating challenge to try to write. So I have all sorts of maps drawn everywhere, and it's a very basic dungeon. There's one way in and one way out. Once you enter the next room, the door shuts behind you. So very okay. little travel to have to think about, and yet still incredibly complex to figure out all the possible interactions and results, especially with multiple players picking up flashlights and dropping them and all of that. So you've designed the story as a deterministic system. Yes. 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 It's like a pacemaker. It's, and, it's, and, uh, and I'm here to tell you that for 54-year-olds, it's a little challenging. Really? So, oh, Do you know well, any 54 year olds, Brian? I don't know any. I know one and he's an idiot. So <laughs> it is cool because I played the game and Ruth was walking us through it and kind of stress testing it a little bit too. But it was really kind of interesting because the things that adults missed, she said that the kids got really quickly. And, oh, yeah, and so way faster than adults. I mean, I've seen kids play games and real video games with all the 3GL stuff in them and kick my butt. I haven't had the experience with text-based games since I think Oregon Trail. So well, that's actually part of the delivery wrapped around it. So before I just drop them into the game, I talk about the history of game design and how games are made. And Oregon Trail is actually a part of that and how 
Oregon Trail was actually created by a history teacher who decided to make a board game for his, I think, eighth graders for his students. And so he's mapping it all out on sheets of paper all over the apartment living room floor. And his roommates came home and were like, what are you doing? And he explains and they're like, look, there's this cool thing. We got computers down at the lab. They would be perfect for this because all you're doing is decision making and computers are really good at that. And he's like, but I need it on Monday. And they're like, okay, let's go do it. And so they spent the weekend developing the first version of Oregon Trail. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. I'm wondering if he had a cat because I remember from Oregon Trail, there's a lot of dysentery. And I'm wondering if the cat was maybe pooping on the floor before the roommates got home. (laughs) Do you have any background on that? I thought you were going to say maybe the cat was named Terry. Oh, maybe the now entirely different direction. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustain OSS on Twitter. I love this idea of the gaming curriculum. And Ruth, I was wondering if you could kind of share a little bit more about like the broader efforts around you mentioned the arcade.redhat.com and gaming in general. From a community standpoint, my bias is such that I see this as a fantastic training mechanism for communities at some level, if we can make this work. But can you kind of talk a little bit more about that gaming community of practice that you mentioned earlier? I can, but I want to hear more about gaming as training for communities. Let me get back to you on that. I'll write a report because. <laughs> really, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, well, because it's an onboarding thing. And, and we've touched on it for some processes both upstream and downstream at, at Red Hat. And I, getting people trained is part of what my team is doing. And I feel like this would be a fantastic opportunity to kind of break things up and not just do a bunch of slideshows, whether we do them over Google Chat or whatever, or in person. It feels like a way to make it more entertaining. But again, I wanted to kind of throw that back at you a little bit and talk about the gaming community of practice as well. Well, who doesn't love to play a game, right? So the gaming COP formed, I guess, about a year and a half, pushing two years ago now. Red Hat has a lot of these communities of practice around various topics. They might be technology-related or technology-adjacent. So we have blockchain and IoT and then UX and UI and all these assorted communities of practice. And I had been talking to some folks about open source and gaming through the International Game Developers Association, the IGDA. I went with a good friend of Red Hat, Professor Stephen Jacobs from the Rochester Institute of Technology to uh, the Game Developers Conference about, mm, I think, six years ago now. And we started the free and open source SIG there for the game developers. And at the same time, there were a couple of Red Hatters doing a thing called Open Jam. I believe it's openjam.io. You can go check it out. That's an open source game development jam that they host every year. And at the same time, they were also working on a game called Customer Portal Engage, built around the Leap Motion Controller that they would have at conferences. 
if you've been to a Red Hat booth at maybe Red Hat Summit or Open Source Summit, some of the larger events in the last couple of years, you may have run into our command line heroes arcade cabinet, which are all running open source games. So all of these things were happening in different teams and we realized, hey, maybe we should get together and do these things together. And that's where the gaming COP came about. So then again, as the world turned virtual last year, everything gets more complicated. We can't very well show up at an event with an arcade cabinet when the event doesn't have a physical location, but yeah. everyone still wanted to play the games. And so we created the Red Hat Arcade. First, it was only within the event platforms. So it was fleeting as long as the event lasted, the arcade was live, but we didn't want the arcade to be temporary and fleeting. So we created arcade.redhat.com and you can go play some of these cool open source games. My kid is a big fan of Square Off, it, even though he loses every time. I like Pity About Earth. That's my favorite. Pity About Earth. That like sounds good. know how many batch commands you can type in a minute. Really? That is fascinating. How can someone get the source code and modify these games? Well, in fact, if you go to arcade.redhat.com, it tells you that find the links for all of them. You can click play or you can click contribute. I suggest play first and then contribute, but you know, whatever works for you. Yeah, I suppose contributing before playing would be a little bit like flying blind. Ruth, I'm curious because that chaos, we like to look at metrics and numbers and data and things. I'm just curious, besides you mentioned that you were keeping track, obviously, of like the number of attendees and watching how those numbers grow. Are there other things that you are keeping track of? Like, for instance, how long it takes the kids to go through the adventures or to complete a task or things like that? I'm just curious. A little bit. So the team that produces them does keep track of those things that they really want to know about how many students we've reached, how many cities we've been to, all those sorts of things, how many programs we've delivered. But as to the, the length of time for delivery, we do take copious notes during and after each of the engagements to try to figure out how we can make it better. We also give the kids a sort of survey after, especially when we do them in person, we don't always do this with the virtuals, but to ask them, what would you have done better? And sometimes because they are 11 year olds and you're an adult, you have to drag it out of them a little bit. Right. But also yeah. at that point, I feel like we should probably ask them halfway through because at the end, uh, they're so excited to have created the thing. And the number of girls who have said things like, my brother's not going to believe that I could do this, or my dad didn't think that I could make something out of hardware. And it's both amazing and wonderful and also a little heartbreaking when they tell you those things, but they get really excited to take the stuff back to school and show the naysayers. Which are usually the dad and the brother. Apparently, I, I, mean, I, I hate to say it, but that's what I hear over and over again from these girls is that boy in my house didn't think I could do it. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we're proving them wrong with collab curriculum. Yeah, 100 percent. Me, too. I, we're kind of curious, too. And is collab something that people can get involved with as volunteers? I know you mentioned that the kits are available. People could do these on their own. Given that it's out there, there's a repo out there on GitHub and whatnot. Like, so there's a little bit of contributing possibility there. But like, how can people get involved with Colab as a volunteer now and maybe in the after times? So anyone who is interested in, in having a Colab should go to redhat.com slash Colab. There is a link for schools and teachers who want to do the guided workshops. There is also another link, as you mentioned, where you can go get the kits yourself. That's great for parents and students who want to do it themselves. And a little more information towards the bottom about collabs around the world and Red Hat's productions of collabs. So 
if anyone is interested in doing that, please do hop on there, hop on the GitHub. If there's anything missing in GitHub, more information you need, if you have questions about it, feel free to email me. I'm Ruth at redhat.com and I'm happy to either help you or help you find someone who can help. The new redhat.com slash collab, I was just scrolling down, actually has answers to some of your number questions, Elizabeth. We're up to 100 plus collaborators, more than 12 countries, more than 700 students, and, and thus more than 700 hits distributed. That's amazing. That is really wonderful. And the robot kit, for example, when you have this many people coming out and using things, do you have any knowledge of after four years what the impact is? This seems like something where it's going to take a decade to really see the effects of these kinds of early open source experiences in middle schoolers. Yeah, and I hope that there are lots more of these kinds of great experiences because 700 kids is wonderful, but you know we're not going to prop up the whole ecosystem for the future with 700 kids. So I am excited to see the results of what I think are a lot of similar programs happening right now and, and how that influences our communities in the future. I think when I look around the room at the, the virtual room, so to speak, of the projects that I've been involved with for you know, 10, 15 or more years, they're all starting to look a little like me, a little old and crusty. So uh, it would be great to, to see more of the, the younger folks coming in. And I do, I love to tell these kids the story of, we had a Fedora contributor that we invited to one of the first Fedora events. This was probably almost 15 years ago. And somebody said, hey, are you going to be there? It's going to be great. And he says, I don't know. I have to ask my mom. And that was the first time anybody had any idea. That he's not also an adult working on the project. So I love to tell them, if you love to make art, then go contribute wallpaper. If you know two languages, then go work on translation. You don't have to write code to be a part of these projects. And in fact, I would love to see more people not writing code in these projects because that's often where they need the most help is in better design, better documentation, better marketing. Because nobody's going to use your project if they've never heard of it and can't figure out how to use it. That is the truth, Ruth. Plus one, plus one, plus one. And you must be around Red Hat quite some time, obviously, just since you have Ruth at redhat.com. That is a great piece of email real estate. That is because nobody should have to spell my last name to find me. I understand that one. (laughs) Ironically, I do generally use my last name as my social media handle. So if you want to find me on Twitter, you're going to have to go hit S-E-U-H-L-E. S-E-U-H-L-E, Ruth Seeley. Or Ruth at redhat.com. When the in-person events return, how much of what you have accomplished in the virtual with Colab do you think will be retained? Or do you think that the virtual is now going to co-evolve alongside the in-person events? So in terms of beyond Colab conferences and events in general, I do hope that we're going to retain a lot of the virtual, a lot of the hybrid for the reasons I was talking about where people who were never able to attend in-person events can do so. I don't know what the team's intentions are for collab. I will say it is a heck of a lot easier to teach collaboration when you're actually in a room with the people collaborating, which is also weird to explain given that open source software projects are collaboration among people who are generally never in the same room with each other. But for 11-year-olds learning this, maybe for the first time, maybe nobody's let them really work with each other since kindergarten. Right. It's a lot easier when we can do a weird interaction thing with a ball of yarn that we do, like we make a spider web. It's a lot easier when we're sitting at the table and can hands-on work together. And frankly, it's really hard to troubleshoot electronics over Zoom. 100% agree with the troubleshooting. I was asking the question as well, because we've certainly experienced a lot of things virtually over the last year plus in the open source worlds that we live in. And it is 
interesting how much more difficult some things are. As you said, even though open source exists as a sort of virtual thing, how much we rely on those face-to-face interactions and relationships. That it's one of the things I love about the text adventure curriculum. It's free, so we don't have to ship a kit of electronics parts to anyone. We don't have to worry about if the battery was dead. We don't have to worry about troubleshooting it when we try to build it together. And the collaboration is built into it. So if we're going to keep doing anything virtual, I think that would be the most fantastic. And it's really easy for anyone else to deliver once they've played through the game once. Yeah. And that's the one that's available on the Colab site. And the answers are on your personal GitHub. Yeah, so the system it runs on is called Game on Text, and Mm -hmm. you can actually go play with that at gameontext.org. Still working on the best way to actually publish all of that for someone to be able to run it. And I I probably should publish all my slides as well that go along with it, explaining the history of video games, the whole Oregon Trail thing. I talk about how many people, I say Oregon Trail started with those three guys in the apartment, but now a modern game that you might play like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I think I added it up, had about 800 contributors on it. Is that an open source game? Absolutely not. No, okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of work with gaming, especially as you get more graphical. I think the labor for building a game is much more significant. It's getting more open source. I mentioned the the Godot open source game engine and anyone who's interested in building open source games, there are lots of resources online for finding the tools to develop open source games beyond the engine. Godot, of course, folks like to use Inkscape and GIMP for the art. There are tools for building 8-bit art. There are tools for the music. There are a few asset libraries, but this is an area that I'd really like to see some expansion in. There aren't as many freely available assets for someone who doesn't have the skills to create those things to start with. So if you're looking for a place to contribute to the open source world and have skills in in developing music and art assets for video games, that would be an excellent place to start. And so the assets are more important as we get into the more visual graphics driven games. Right. That's all the stuff that we don't have to do to create a text adventure. It's an important thing to note. Go ahead and contribute to some assets to open source gaming. And if uh, Red Hat opens up any sort of repository for that, let us know and we'll promote it. Will do. So I think we've reached the point in the podcast where we want to do our value ads and picks, which is kind of a fun game that we play, not to over punify what we're talking about, but I see uh, what you did there, Sean. Sir, I'm sure that you, I'm glad you did. And my value add pick is going to be gameontext.org. I'm just going to steal that one right out there and say that looks like a pretty cool place for people to start playing around and thinking about ways that we can write stories and create text games that promote open source software engagement amongst a wider audience. Well, my value pick is actually one that I can easily share with Ruth since this was very much driven by her idea. Our office has just recently launched a new upstream community resource called contributor.link, where we are kind of modeling off of the old open hatch project that was around a few years ago, where they would link developers to upstream community projects. We're doing that and taking it well past that. We're trying to link all contributors to community open source projects and get projects that need talent of any kind, designers, writers, marketing people, website designers, infrastructure experts, anything that a project might need and they just don't have 
a way of finding those people. We're reaching out to projects. We've got about 13 on the website right now. We just launched a couple of weeks ago. Super excited about it. And then new contributors who are looking for a project that might have their talent can come to the website and find projects that might drive their passion and also be able to use their talent. So we're super excited about this. We're going to expand it. We're going to throw in educational resources for projects and new contributors to kind of walk them through how open source works. So look for a lot more buildup on that community. We're very excited about it at OSPO right now. That sounds really cool. A good way of automatically connecting or sort of in a shepherded way, connecting people who want to contribute to open source and maybe don't know where to begin with projects that need contributions. Yeah, we're thrilled. And there are a lot of people on my team who are anxious to jump in and help. So, and stop on by and check it out and see what you can do. I already filled out the form, Brian. Okay. I have not yet, but I will, because that is super cool. My pick is, this is not in tech at all. And I do a lot of nature photography. And so this is an app that you can get on your phone called inaturalist.org is where you can find more information about it. What you can do with this app is take a picture of anything in nature. If you're on a trail or something, you see a flower or a plant or a mushroom, you just take a picture and it will tell you what it is. And there's a huge community behind it. It's open source and it's fantastic. And I love that app. It's called inaturalist.org. So that's my pick, even though it's not in tech. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. No need to apologize. Does it not? Everything needs to be in tech. We have lives outside of the technical universe that we spend our paid time in. And Ruth, what is your extra pick? I'm going to go with Call for Code, which is a project that as a Red Hatter, I work with a, a bit with IBM, which is the lead producer of the project. So the Call for Code Global Initiative is a challenge to create and deploy open source solutions to address each year a different critical issue facing the world this year. The challenge topic is climate change with three focus areas, clean water and sanitation, zero hunger, and responsible production and green consumption. And anyone can go submit a project. It's open uh, at callforcode.org until July 31st. The grand prize winner is gets $200,000 and <laughs> solution deployment. So worth the effort. You have to build software related to climate change in some way. Indeed. Wow. I have no idea where to begin with that. Well, you can go to callforco.org and check out the past winners because climate change was last year's topic as well alongside COVID-19. Callforco's been around for a few years, so you can go see some of the the stuff that's won in the past. That is exciting. Thank you for sharing that, Ruth. And thank you for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, parents, children, aunts, and uncles. And if you have ideas for future topics or would like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, your chaos community with Ruth, Brian, and Elizabeth. My name is Sean. Have a lovely day or night, depending when you're listening.